0: Welcome to Beyond Politics broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson with my co-host, former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. The football coach Vince Lombardi famously said that winners never quit and quitters never win. The surefire way to turn a UFC fight or a boxing match into a blood feud is to say that your opponent is a quitter. And Angela Duckworth spawned a New York Times bestseller and a cottage industry around the idea of grit, not giving up, a combination of passion and perseverance that she says is the hallmark of high achievers and the difference between success and failure. In recent years, we've all imbibed that idea. I can say myself that as a parent of young children, my wife and I have had countless conversations about how to instill more of that stubborn stick-to-itiveness in our kids. But our guest today says, Take a deep breath here, people. The world isn't divided into spineless jellyfish losers and the iron-willed idols who laugh at them from atop Mount Olympus. It's a lot more nuanced than that. In fact, a lot of the time, the smartest decision is to quit. Annie Duke is well known to anyone who got caught up in the poker boom of the mid-2000s as one of the top professionals in the game. But over a decade ago, she quit. And now she's a best-selling author, a corporate speaker, a consultant on decision-making, as well as special partner focused on decision science at First Round Capital Partners, a seed stage venture firm. Her newest book is Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. And for our WKXL radio listeners, she's also a Concord, New Hampshire native. Annie, welcome to Beyond Politics.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I I mean, I know we're remote, but I feel like I'm kind of home. So
0: (laughs) it's, it's great to have you home. It is, we're, we're all over Zoom and, but I, I think New Hampshire is very, very proud to claim you. So I want to ask you a little bit about your bravery here, given all the cultural baggage around quitting the way we venerate grit these days, you are going out on a bit of a limb here. It might hit people like you're, you're writing a book, like in defense of cheating or the value of lying why did you want to write this book?
1: So, I mean, I wanted to write this book partly for for what you talked about, right? That the, the people who stick to it are the heroes of our stories. And so then what happens is that for a variety of reasons, we kind of think, well, what, what all the aphorisms say, right? Like winners never quit and quitters never win. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And I think that that's just really like, honestly, incredibly bad advice. And I just want to say Angela Duckworth would agree with me that that's very bad advice, because if you actually read her amazing book, which people should, what you will see her say is that you should go find something that you love that's worthwhile and stick to it even if it's hard, that that is an important character trait. What is not a good character trait is to stick to things just because even when they're not worthwhile like when you have a concussion on the field, you should walk off the field. When you're in a job that is making you miserable, assuming you have other options, you should walk away and go find another one. If you're in an abusive relationship, please leave. And that's true, not just for those bigger scale decisions, but for projects we do, for example, and also Beliefs that we have. There's all sorts of things that we believe about the world that then you sort of find out new stuff. And we see this all the time that people are unwilling to abandon their beliefs. And this gets into this huge problem, which is when you stubbornly stick to something, maybe because you think it's a sign of character, or because we have all sorts of cognitive biases that make it so that we want to stubbornly stick to things and we don't want to let things go, maybe because you're afraid of failing. And so you stick to something that isn't worthwhile, that's time that you couldn't, that you cannot be spending on other things that are worthwhile. And so it net makes us unhappier. It makes us less likely to achieve our goals. We think that quitting things is going to stop our progress or slow it down. It's not true. If you quit things that aren't worthwhile, it's going to speed you up, it's going to get you to where you want to go faster. And I just felt like, Someone needed to say that because I didn't feel like anybody was.
2: Hmm. Uh, Well, I I might digress for a moment and say I'm hoping that Donald Trump Reads your book, but let's let's focus on the book. Where I think he's more into lot- the
1: power of positive thinking, which would be a little yeah. bit against what I say here.
0: Or magical thinking. Or magical case, thinking.
1: Maybe. Well, yeah. so the power of positive thinking. I mean, I think this is a good example. So we know about like Napoleon Hill and, and so on and so forth, right? With the power of positive thinking, Norman Vincent Peel, who actually I think officiated Donald Trump's second wedding. I think that <laughs> that that kind of thing of just imagine it and you'll get there, which is a sort of form of don't give up, right? If you just just believe, which, which by the way, is amplifying an, a bias that we have that actually biases us against quitting, which is over-optimism. So we tend to think things are going to take shorter than they are. We tend to overestimate the chances that of success for ourselves. We tend to think we have much more control over outcomes than we actually do. So that type of positive thinking is actually amplifying a bias that we already have. I don't like mindsets that amplify probably things that are actually getting in our way, but it culminates in a book called The Secret. Have you heard of this book?
0: Oh, I, I feel like not. I have, but I'm I'm probably
1: it was like an uh, Oprah I'm, I'm book choice myself. Or yeah. So The Secret basically says it takes this idea that if you imagine success, it will come, to a completely nutty level, which is that your brain generates magnetic waves that will bring the things that you're thinking to you. So this is the power of positive thinking on steroids. And obviously that's not true, but it was a hugely, I think it sold like 20 million copies or something. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a hugely successful book because, and the thing that I want to say is that these books that, that do really well, like the secret where you say, or magical thinking, I'm saying this is actually sort of where that culminates into this kind of magical thinking They tend to be reinforcing a bias that we already have.
0: Right, right. So, you know, whatever. I'm a contrarian. No, it reminds me of Walter Isaacson's Steve Jobs biography where he's venerated in our culture. But if you actually read what he was like, he, he was trapped in magical thinking and he drew everyone else into what they called a reality distortion field. And it worked out. It worked out spectacularly. It helped create the modern technology. Right, but it doesn't mean that
1: you should do that.
0: Right, it's not something to emulate necessarily.
1: Yeah. Well, So so this is something that I think is really, I think this is actually a really big problem is that this, again, the people who stick to it are the heroes of our story. And when we hear about the startup founder who got down to their last 50,000 in the bank, right? Or the person who was, climbing Mount Everest and like pushed through the snowstorm and made it to the summit and then came back. We admire them. And those are the stories that we hear about. What we don't hear about is all the founders who got down to their last 50,000 when frankly, they should have quit well before that and just went broke and wasted. Mm. You know, there were probably really strong signals a year before that happened or two years before that happened. And now this brilliant person, because if, if you've if you done this, you're clearly brilliant and gritty. This brilliant person has now taken two years of a very short life. We all, we're all on this planet for a finite period of time and wasted it on something that was clearly going to fail instead of spending that time maybe starting something that was going to actually change the world. I mean, this is something that we need to understand is that there's a huge cost to this stubbornly sticking, but then we'll say, but no, and it's used almost as a rationalization, but no, there's this one guy, right? Or this one gal who, who did this. And so therefore I'm supposed to stick to it, but what's true retrospectively is not true prospectively, right? Just because there's somebody who managed to somehow avoid the brink of death doesn't mean that you're supposed to keep pushing when you're at the brink of death, just for the hope of the possibility that you could turn it around. But we're so afraid of quitting before it's obvious that we have to, that we will mm. keep going until it's a dead certainty that mm. we have no other choice. Because as long as we keep going, maybe we won't have to fail. And we think about quitting as a failure. And that's the problem because it's really not. But that's all we think about it.
2: So in your book, you tell a lot of really very rich stories. A lot of them are drawn from sports That about how hard it is to know when it's time to walk away, and how hard it is to even then admit, hey, I'm walking away. You right. you open the story of Muhammad Ali. That's a great story. You also talk about the skier, Lindsay Vaughn, the runner, Shabon O'Keefe, Mount, the mountain climbers on Mount Everest, lots of other stories. Would you share one of these stories, to give our listeners and, and those who, who may be watching, if we're capturing this on video, a sense of what you're driving at?
1: Yeah. So I actually think, so there, there's kind of two ways to go. One is where it's obvious that quitting is a good thing. I could kind of start there, but the other the other really kind of sort of takes a lot of these themes together, but I'll start with just like, let's talk about why clearly we should be quitting. Like why quitting is not a bad thing Sure. given the context, right? Mm-hmm. Because the thing is like, it's not like grit is a virtue and quit is a vice. They're the exact same decision, right? If I choose to stick to something, I'm choosing not to quit. If I choose to quit something, I'm choosing not to stick to it. Mm-hmm. And what that means that it's all about this question of, is the thing I'm doing still worthwhile? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so the problem that we have as decision makers is when we start things, there's a whole bunch of stuff we don't know. And then there's going to be the influence of luck. So that means that we're starting when we're very uncertain how it's going to turn out. Like think about- hiring somebody into a a job. You have like their CV, a couple of interviews and a few recommendations. I mean, so you're going to discover a whole bunch of things after the fact, right? I mean, that's just the influence of uncertainty on our decisions. And what I'm saying is that when that new information that you discover tells you, hey, that was your best guess at the time, But now you learn stuff, new stuff, and you should probably switch what you're doing. We should be paying attention to that, but we're terrible at it for fear that it will mean we made a mistake in the first place. Okay, so I really feel like so many stories about grit where we think about really gritty people start on Mount Everest. So I would like to tell a story about quit that is also on Mount Everest. I think it'll help people to see this. So this story is about three climbers, Dr. Stuart Hutchinson, John Taskey, and Luke Kasiski. Okay. So the three climbers, they're climbing Everest. They're part of a climbing expedition. You know, those got really popular in the nineties and there's eight other climbers in their group. I think there are three climbing Sherpas and an expedition leader. So they're, they're obviously well-trained climbers. They're climbing Mount Everest. And the thing about climbing Mount Everest is that most of the problems that happen to you don't occur on the ascent. They mostly occur on the descent. And the reason why most of the bad stuff happens when you're on your way down should be kind of obvious. It's like, that's when you're low on oxygen. You're also really tired, right? You've been climbing up and now you're climbing down and that's when you're tired. You usually have lost some of your adrenaline because you got to your destination, which is what you were aiming for. Um, And so what they do on Mount Everest is something uh, which is called a turnaround time. So they set a turnaround time for any day's climb. And the turnaround time is... Supposed to basically save you from the bad decision making mm. that you're going to experience when you're in sort of the shadow of the summit, right? And you've we've all heard about summit fever, right? Like once you're kind of close, you won't turn around, which is generally a problem with with quitting. Is like if you're trying to make the summit of Everest and you don't make it, you failed. Like never mind that you climbed like 29,000 feet into the air, which seems like pretty successful to me. I mean, compared to me, who never actually tried. But that's not the way we think about it. If we if 300 feet short of the summit is failure. Okay, so that's where you get the summit fever, like the draw of the, the end point being right there. And people tend to make very, very bad decisions in the shadow of the summit. So the expedition leader of this particular expedition leader that Hutchinson, Tasky, and Kositsky were in set a turnaround time on summit day of 1 p.m. So all that meant is you leave base, you leave camp four rather at midnight, you start to go up the mountain. And it's if you don't make it to the summit by 1 p.m., no matter where you are on the mountain, I don't care. You have to turn around. And it's particularly on summit day meant to save you from a problem, which is called the Southeast Ridge. So the Southeast Ridge is a very narrow part of the mountain that you have to you have to traverse both on on the ascent and on the descent. And it's very, very narrow. You can only go in a single line. It's pretty dangerous. And you need to do it in daylight. If you don't do it in daylight, basically you're either going to fall like 8,000 feet into Tibet or like 12,000 feet into Nepal or vice versa. I don't know, but there it's a, you're going to fall a long way into one of those two countries. I'm not going. Good. (laughs) Right. Well, then you don't have to have so much fever. So that's good for you. So, so so the the one you leave at midnight in order to get there, to go up it in daylight, and then you have to turn around by 1 PM in order to go down it in daylight. So that's why you have the 1 PM turnaround time. So Hutchinson, Tasking and Kosicki leave, they go and remember that this is like expeditions on, on Everest have now gotten very, very popular. So on this particular day that they're, they're going for the summit, it's really crowded on the mountain. There's some incompetent climbers in front of them. They're kind of clumped up and you, you have to sort of go almost in a single line. And so they're going really, really slow. So their expedition leader comes up behind them and they stop, they stop them. They stop the expedition leader and Hutchinson says, how long do you think it's going to be until we get to the summit from here? He kind of thinks about it and says, well, I think it's going to be three hours. And after that, the expedition leader sort of runs ahead of them to try to make up time. So Hutchinson holds Taskin and Kaczynski back and says, I think we really have a problem because the expedition leader just told us it was going to be three hours to the summit and it's 1130 in the morning. So by my calculation, that means we'll get there at 230. Like, let's say even if we start going fast, like, what are we going to do? Get there by two. That's an hour past the turnaround time. So it seems to me that the writing is already on the wall. We ought to turn around. So Taski agreed right away. Kasitsky was a little harder to convince because he was trying to accomplish the seven summits where you climb the seven highest peaks in the world. And Everest happened to be his seventh. So he was kind of giving up on a really big goal, but they convinced him also. And they turned around and went back to the camp. So I assume you've never heard of these people. Right, not, <laughs> not surprising. Because, <laughs> like, the, is this a heroic story? It doesn't feel like a particularly heroic story to us. It's certainly not something that a movie is going to be made out of, except that it was, because they were part of the expedition that was chronicled in John hours Into Thin oh. Air. Their expedition leader was, get ready for this, Rob Hall, who got to the peak at 2 p.m. and waited for Doug Hansen for another two hours until 4 p.m. And they both perished on top of the mountain. Mm -hmm. So Rob Hall is the one who told them that it was going to be three hours to the top of the mountain. Maybe you're saying, but I don't know them because they weren't actually in the book. Well, they were. They were very big characters in the book. In fact, Krakauer said they were the best decision makers on the mountain that day. They were also part of the documentary and they were also characters in the movie starring Jake Mm -hmm. Gyllenhaal. So the question then becomes... Why don't you know who they are? Right. Right. Because it's clear, like, obviously quitting was a really good choice there. Look at what happened to the people who continued. And yet they're totally invisible to us because they aren't our heroes.
0: Yeah. But they should be. That's so interesting. It, it reminds me so much of the book, The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe and the level of veneration that we give to the heroes. And I'm taking nothing away from their bravery sitting on top of the rocket. But he tells an anecdote in the midst of that about how as part of the selection for the Mercury 7, two of the astronauts that were selected were part of the same test pilot crash. And one of them made the decision to bail out one mm-hmm. of them made the decision to remain in the craft both of them made the right decision because of the way the craft worked out right and and what would have happened had they done the reverse they both to your point they both they're they're, they're two sides of the same coin you're making that's a right. decision in either case and they made the right decision their capacity to make the right decision even when it's bailing out is is clearly something that's extremely important we don't really hear about about that we kind don't. of story.
1: Right. What we hear about is, I mean, it's really interesting. It's like Rob mm. Hall, who died on the mountain. He was the one who set the turnaround time and he didn't follow it. Right. And he died. And, and, and by the way, I just want to say, Rob Hall could have actually turned back and caught Doug Hansen along the way and had him turn around. So, but, but he, that's the hero of the story. Another, another interesting one that's similar to that is just, if people have watched Free Solo, Alex Honnold who did that, we think of that, oh, he got to the top of El, El Capitan, like without ropes, but actually a year before he turned around on pitch six because he just didn't feel like his, he he had hurt his his ankle and he didn't feel good. But nobody remembers that part of the movie that the reason why, like he probably would have died if he had continued, but he turned around, waited till he was in better health. And then, and this is the important thing. And then he he actually was successful. And so there that quitting was so important because otherwise he would have given up all those opportunities in the future by making a bad decision then.
0: You were just describing a moment ago, some of the ways, that mountain climbers, for example, overcome our tendency to have summit fever, to go for our goal, to hear that voice in our head saying, you can't quit, never quit. And and there are ways around this, but I want to just quickly unpack what some of those cognitive biases are. Actually, you have professional training, you have a degree in this, you know a lot about these kinds of things. Could Could you just give us like an overview? What are the cognitive biases that we're talking about that kind of trap us into not quitting when we should?
1: So I think this is something really interesting, which is what got me so excited about writing the book is that there's a a real very large variety of cognitive biases that all contribute to this problem that we have with quitting. So first, let me just say that I think that what we think is that when we enter into something and we get bad news, we'll just stop, right? So like um, if you're running a marathon and you break your leg, obviously you won't continue running, except that people do it all the time. I, I talk about it in my book, like Siobhan O'Keefe broke her leg on mile eight of the London Marathon in 2019. She kept going. And let's let's be serious. When she crosses the finish line, we all kind of admire her for it. Right. 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 Except why? Like she's she's risking a compound fracture. Like this can't possibly be a good decision, but we're kind of like, oh, I wish I had that kind of grit.
0: All right. Well, I have to interject something here because my wife is an accomplished marathoner and what she has consistently told me, and I, I identify it with, with it, I do, is she can't allow herself the possibility that she might quit. If she starts to think, it's like the movie Inception. Once the seed is planted in her mind that, yeah, so that, that she might. I,
1: that's actually So it's actually not true because she's clearly really? a really gritty person and she would grit it out anyway. And what you want to be careful of is going too far. So mm. if you literally break your leg on mile eight of a marathon, let's be honest, you should stop. And the reason that you should stop is that you may not ever be able to run a marathon again, which is, I assume, the whole point for you, right, is to be able to run marathons. So well, that's a great
0: it, insight, although you may have just started a fight in our house. Well, so it, it's more about this.
1: what's the threshold for the unless. I'm going to keep going unless. Right. And so right, with a right. marathon, it may be unless I... Break something, or I'm so dehydrated that I stop sweating. That'd be a good reason to stop, right? So you can think about what those are that are real health concerns that could put literally your life in jeopardy or your ability to run another marathon in jeopardy. So the more you want to stick to it, you have to have a higher threshold for the things that would have you stop. So I'm not, I don't think actually we would disagree because I think she she probably thinks Siobhan O'Keefe should have stopped running when she broke <laughs> She does.
0: She's also a doctor. So she definitely thinks that. She
1: definitely thinks that, but people don't really do that. So we need to sort of throw that, that idea out that we're going to be rational when we see it. And I think the reason that you you can see this really well is I'm sure you've seen other people doing things where you know they should quit, but they don't do it because when you're in it when you're the one making that decision like i'm going to go from maybe i could turn it around to definitely failing nobody wants that moment so broadly i would say that the strongest force that stops us from quitting is something called the sunk cost effect this is actually a huge problem with public works projects by the way i'm speaking to the politician on the call right now so essentially once we put once we start something we start to put time effort, money, attention into that thing. And when we're considering stopping, we make the mistake of taking into account what we have already sunk into the endeavor when we're thinking about continuing and sinking more into the endeavor. So I'll give you, I'll, I'll try to do this one with you. Let's see, Paul. Okay, so let's say that there's a Shakespeare in the park and on the day, which is outside, on the day, because I lived in New Hampshire, it's a freak snowstorm in October. So it's freezing cold and, and let's say there's sleet and it's awful. So would you buy a ticket to that, to go see it that day? No, no, not in a million years, right? Not in a million years. But what if you already bought a ticket for a hundred bucks?
2: Oh, then I might dress up really warm and right. put on my woolies and long underwear and my big heavy gloves and my parka and go and at least see if they're going to hold the show because I paid a right. hundred bucks for it. I got to, I, I can't, I've already sunk all that money in. I mean, I, I can't You don't quit. want to waste the ticket. Home. I don't want to waste the ticket.
1: That's right. So this exposes the fallacy. If you wouldn't buy the ticket today, you shouldn't go just because you already have the ticket because it's a question of, am I going to enjoy this going forward? Right? So with public works projects, you'll see people say, well, we can't waste the taxpayers money and it's okay. But, if it's like the California bullet train, which is a disastrous public works project, people can read about it in the book. But all right. So yeah, I understand that there's a certain amount of taxpayer money that's already been spent, but the budget just went from $33 billion to $105 billion, And it's clear that this thing isn't going well. And what you should con- be concerned about is the next dollar of the taxpayer's money that we're going to spend worthwhile. We also see this with decisions about conflict right? And this actually speaks to some of the questions of like, things aren't going well for Putin. Why isn't he withdrawing? Part of it, not all of it, because a lot of that has to do with identity and validity and that kind of thing. But part of it is a sunk cost problem. So you'll see this with like General Tony Thomas told me that when he would speak to a gold star parent, they would often say to him, like, go win this thing. So my child hasn't died in vain. Okay, so this is like An incredibly heartbreaking, high-stakes version of the sunk cost fallacy. I understand that your child has died for the cause, which is heartbreaking. And thank thank you for your service and what you have done for our country. But... That does not mean that we're supposed to continue to put lives at risk, right? And this is how we can get caught up in like the Vietnam War, went, which went on. I mean, we look back on that. We we're, we know we should have gotten out of that a lot sooner. The war in Afghanistan, that went on for 20 years. We should have gone gotten out of that a lot sooner because then when you're in those conflicts, it's not just money. It's not just time and effort, but there's also human lives at cost and national identity. Well, so I, let me ask
0: you about one of your other lighter examples because then
1: the vietnam wars were yeah
0: because you you raise this example of the study of nba drafts and the the propensity of nba teams to give more playing time to high draft picks even if they're not playing any better then lower draft picks. And some of that may be sunk cost.
1: A, a lot if- of it is sunk cost actually because of the, so yeah, so this was work that was originally done by Barry Star with a collaborator and then was replicated by Colin Cameron, and has since been replicated again. Basically what they said is you've got a high draft pick versus a lower draft pick. We can do all sorts of analysis of what their on-court productivity is. And one would assume that that would be the only thing that determines whether you play, right? It's like, all right, like how many field goals are you scoring? How many rebounds are you getting? What you know, so on and so forth. And what they found was that once you controlled for the actual performance, right, that over the course of a season, one draft choice, like if first versus second, 23 minutes of, of more playing time during a season, and they're they tended to stay with the team for about, I think it was one to two years longer. This is despite the fact that they're playing just as well as, as. They were playing only as well as people who were lower draft picks. So when we think about sunk costs, this is separate from you're identified with that player. They spent a draft pick to acquire that player. That's a pretty big cost. Their contracts tend to be bigger. That's a pretty big cost.
0: Is some of that potentially, you would know this topic way better than I would, is some of that potentially also the gambler's fallacy, this idea that, okay, maybe this bet that we've inherently made on this risky proposition, this high draft pick hasn't paid off yet but we're due. We're overdue for it to, to come in.
1: Yeah. So I don't know that I would say that that's the gambler's fallacy. What I would say, it's not about whether you're due. It's more that as long as you keep going, you might turn it around. So it's mm. this is something that I think it comes from Daniel Kahneman. It's a concept called sure loss aversion. So let me give you the example. So let's say you buy a stock at 50 and it's trading at 40. If you sell it, you have to surely take the loss, right? It turns into a, a realized loss. But if you keep the gamble on, maybe maybe it'll go back to 50. So I think this is the issue with these higher draft picks. It's not so much that you're overly optimistic about how they're going to perform in the future. It's that if you actually trade them or you take them off the court, then you can never redeem it, yeah. right? And and this this becomes a really big problem. And, and there's this sort of broad issue, which is has to do with a quirk of our mental accounting, which Richard Thaler talks about that, when we start something, we open up a mental account for that thing. And if that thing is losing, which could eat, which is a cognitive phenomenon, you could, because, okay, so let me explain why it's a cognitive phenomenon. Siobhan O'Keefe, when she broke her leg at eight miles, was in the plus column in an objective sense, eight miles. She had run eight more miles than zero, but cognitively she was in the losses she was losing because she was 18.2 miles short of the finish line. That's true on Everest too, right? If you're 300 miles, 300 feet from the summit, you're not in the gains. Twenty nine thousand. You're in the losses 300 feet. A stock that's trading at 40 that was at 50 is in the losses $10, but so is a stock that was trading at 50 went up to 70 and is now trading at 60. Never mind, it's higher than when you bought it. And we all feel this right now, right? I bet if most of us looked at our portfolio from three years ago, we'd be up from three years ago. But if all of us are super sad right now because we feel like we're in the losses. Okay. So this is this phenomenon of in the losses and he has the insight. We don't like to close accounts in the losses. (laughs) We just don't like to do it because as you just pointed out, Matt, that's when you can't turn it around anymore because right, you right, took the gamble right. off. You're done. Sorry. But we can't so, think so, about one account at a time. So, Sorry, go ahead, Paul. So you,
2: you've you now given us quite a list of various cognitive biases that are at work when we are trying to make A decision. And you've got great stories in your book. You told a great story on a recent Slate podcast about an ER doctor and how you helped her get out of the mental trap she was in. So there are all these clearly, it's a, it's, it's, you've done a very scientific examination of the, of these biases. How do you help people overcome these cognitive biases and think more rationally? if that's possible, about the value of quitting. What's the role of the emotions? What's the role of the brain with the biases? How are they connected to then the brain's got to try to deal with all that and weigh a decision?
1: So the answer is don't trust your brain to do it, which, which I know is kind of weird. But I think that what people think is, well, if I know about the bias, then I, maybe I can overcome it because of knowledge. But these things are very deeply hardwired into us. I can tell you, like, I know about the sunk cost fallacy, and I still kind of want to go to Shakespeare in the Park when I've already paid the ticket. I won't do it, but, but I, I really kind of want to. And there's all sorts of situations that are much less obvious to me where I'm falling into that trap, right? So the key is don't trust yourself to notice it in the moment, because you won't. We all have summit fever whether it's a relationship that we're in or a job that we're doing, a project that we started, a product we're developing, a sales lead that we're pursuing, whatever it is, we all have summit fever. So let's just sort of discard that idea as that's the way that you deal with it, which means that what we have to do is somehow manage to get ourselves out of that that moment that is so emotional for us when we have to go from maybe failing to having failed, terrifying moment for all of us. And there's two main strategies that allow us to do this. One is think ahead. So when you start something, actually develop kill criteria, kind of like a turnaround time, right? Kill criteria for like, okay, I'm taking this job, but what are the things that I could see in the future that would tell me it's not for me? Or every quarter you can redo that. Like maybe you're saying, oh, I feel like I'm unhappy in my job. Mm. How long could I take it for? Let's say it's two months. What would I need to see change at the end of two months for me to feel like I've turned this around? What are the things that I could still be seeing that would tell me that it's time to give it up? Right, a turnaround time is a super a simple example of that. Another one would be a loss limit, like in stocks, people have stop losses. In poker, I had loss limits. Or for your wife, if I break my leg, right, right. right. If I'm, de- I'm if I'm dehydrated and I find that I'm not sweating, mm. right. So th- these would be things that would tell you that you ought to stop and do that in advance. That can be incredibly helpful. The science is very strong that that will get you to be more rational. And then the second one, and notice that you're getting yourself out of the emotional moment by thinking in advance about it, right? So that, that can be very helpful for us. The second strategy to get it sort of the emotion out of it is to get someone to help you. Go find yourself a mentor or a, a therapist or a friend or a coworker who you will help you with the decision, kind of to the point of what we said before is that we look at other people who are really stuck in things and we can see that they should get out, but they don't well, then that's true for you too. Other people are looking in on you and seeing the same thing. So get them to tell you, right? And because otherwise what happens, and I'm sure this has happened to you, is some friend comes to you, they're exp- complaining about their job, that it's horrible, blah, blah, blah. They say, but I think I could make it work. I'm going to, I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it some more time. And then you see them two months later and they're complaining about the job saying, I think I can give it more time and I'm going to make it work. And this just goes on forever where you're just like, why aren't you quitting, right? And it's because they haven't done this work. First of all, they haven't given you permission to just tell them to quit. And if they haven't given you permission, it's very hard for you to say that. They have to tell you it's okay. And they haven't actually told, given you any, they haven't actually set like a deadline with Hmm. the criteria that would tell you whether you're there. So if they came to, the better strategy would be they come to you complaining about your job and you say, oh man, I'm really sorry. And they say, but I think I can turn it around. You're like, I agree. You can cheerlead them. And then you say, but how long can you take this for? Right. Always a great question. And they'll say like two months. I can take it for two more months.
0: All right. So all of this leads me to a natural follow-up and it's a two-part question. And I've got to warn you, Annie, the second part is a trap. I'm laying a trap for you here. Okay. Okay. Here's the first part. Look, you famously were an extremely successful poker player and you quit. How did you exert the influence on yourself to come to that decision? Was it the right decision? Are you, are you happier about it now? I've got, I've got the follow-up, but I'll let you.
1: I mean, first of all, let me just say, I'm much happier for it. Mm. And I did it too late. But that, but it's okay. I mean, the thing is like, look, I want to be clear with people that like, let's say you sit with your friend and you say, how long can you take it for? And they say two or three months or whatever. And then you set out really good kill criteria with them. They're still going to quit too late, even if they quit three months later, because they should quit that day, but you stop them from going on about it for a year. Right. So we have to realize like, that's a huge win. No, I'm much happier for it, which honestly is the reason why I quit because I wasn't happy anymore. Um, and I also really wanted to free my time up to do some other things. So my consulting work was going very well. And, uh, so was my speaking and I want really wanted to write thinking in bets. So I was already sort of like noodling that idea. I also wanted to found this nonprofit that I did, which is called the Alliance for Decision Education. There were a variety of things that I wanted to do. And and on, on balance, I wasn't, it wasn't even like, I'll be happier doing those things in comparison. I just had become somewhat unhappy the other thing is to be honest, the players were getting really good and I was really interested in other things and I didn't want to devote the time to keep up
0: mm. to tell you
1: the truth. They were just better than me. And I just kind of recognized that. So,
0: all right. I, that, that springs a poker question of mind, but I'm going to put that in the parking lot because okay. I have to ask you my follow-up. Here. Do you have kill criteria for what you're doing now?
1: Oh, I always set kill criteria. So, you know, I, even during the writing process, like in a given book, there's tons of quitting that I do when like, I'm just having trouble with a section. And I know if I've spent enough time on it and I can't work it out, it's not, I'm not doing it well. A lot of what I'm doing when I'm giving talks is trying to work out how to say things in the book. So I'm actually testing things and then discarding certain things, continuing to like, you know, develop the things that seem to be working. I've thrown whole book ideas out. So I wrote a proposal while i was so i was promoting how to decide i actually wrote two proposals right afterwards one was for quit and one was for another book and i ended up tossing the other book and i don't think i'll actually write it again because it just wasn't like i there's kill criteria that have to do with how excited is your agent how excited is your editor do they seem to re- be responding to the ideas you know things like that so i try to I try to do that quite a bit and I actually use, that's something that I use my own editor for It's for helping me quit. I use my husband for this quite a bit because I, I try to think really clearly about what is the purpose of the consulting or speaking or writing that I'm doing. And it's only to make me happy, right? To make me feel fulfilled. And when I start to see that cost benefit switching, which I did actually recently with traveling for talks, I will quit. So I almost never travel for a talk unless it's on the Acela corridor anymore. And I used to travel all the time, but the benefits of that started to out, the costs of it rather started to outweigh the benefits. And I have clear ideas about how do I feel the mo- the, when I am packing my suitcase? Am I excited? Am I sad? Do I wish I had canceled it? And when I start to notice that, I try to pay attention to it because I've set that in advance
2: yeah you know, wow. So I'm a person who is not nearly as linear as my brilliant co-host, Matt Robeson. It's one of the reasons why we worked so well together because I'm kind of a top of the brain. Go with my gut. don't 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 make too many lists and just go for it kind of guy. And Matt Robeson, a trained economist, a brilliant thinker and strategist, is very linear. He knows how to make lists. He knows how to probably set the kill button and do all that. I, I never did. And this, this conversation has brought so many things in my life to mind, like my wife, who's spent 13 years writing a book and just got an agent and she's now putting a proposal together with a real agent to go to go to publishers after thirteen years, and 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 innumerable times she could have quit. Or my own political experience. So I ran for Congress in '04. I got totally clobbered. I got smacked, and I decided to stick with it. And I won in two thousand and six. Now. Then I decided to run for the USN. Like I got clobbered again, but and I and I left politics for a long time. So so maybe in 'oh six I got lucky or caught better timing. But clearly there was some merit for me in sticking with things from two thousand four loss to a two thousand six win. After after reading your book and and hearing all this, is there a way for all of us to tell if we're kind of veering toward quitting too easily? Are there clear indications that sticking with things longer is the right thing to do?
1: So here's the thing. I have no truck whatsoever with your wife working on a novel for 13 years or you getting clobbered in one year and then getting elected in the next cycle, because I want to be very clear that this all has to do with your values. So I'm obviously a very gritty person. I did five years worth of graduate school. I was a poker player for 18 years, which is a super uncertain environment. Anybody who's written a book needs to be super gritty because it's freaking hard to do it. So the question is though, are you sticking to things that are making you happy? And that's a question of your values. So Mm -hmm. what I would say with your wife is, are you only going to be happy if you actually find an agent or publish this book? Or are you fine just working on it? And that brings you a lot of joy. Now, I imagine if she worked on it for 13 years, she must have been fine just working on it. That would be my guess. Because if she wasn't, and what she really was saying was, no, I want it to be published, I would ask her, but what could you be doing with the time otherwise? Mm-hmm. And if she doesn't have a good answer for something else she could be doing with the time that would be making her making her happy, and she's sanguine about the idea that it may never get published and I'm fine with that, then I don't, then that's fine. I endorse right? If your dream is to to run for Congress, and we all know that oftentimes the base rate is the first time you run, you probably don't win. So I don't think that that's particularly a good signal that you shouldn't run again, unless it's so painful for you to have put in all the time into campaigning and so on and so forth, and then experience that defeat that you realize there's something else that would make you happier. But that's a question of your own values, all yeah. I want people to do is to go into things understanding what the goal is. So as an example, if your wife were writing that novel, I assume it's a novel, but maybe it's not. It's actually
2: um, not, but that doesn't okay. matter.
1: So let's say it's a novel. So she's right, she decides she wants to write a novel and her goal, what she says is, I will not be happy unless this gets published, unless I find an agent and it, it gets published. She can actually go look up what's the average time for someone to be seeking an agent and then actually get under contract right so you can figure out what that average time is for a first time author let's say it's 5 years so depending on how much she wants it she can say if i get to 5 years and i haven't done it i'll stop maybe i'll switch to a different idea maybe i'll switch to something else altogether or maybe she has a little more tolerance because it's really her dream and she says i'll go for 7 right but that's only if that's the goal if she if you're getting other things out of it you do you be you right? But the fact is that as it turns out in this particular case, it worked out for her, but the, all the signals were that it wasn't going to. And so that's not a justification for it having been a good decision in the first place. That's the thing we have to remember. That's a little bit like saying, I ran through a red light and I get, didn't get in an accident. Let me keep doing that.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. So. Well, this is, I, I mean, I could literally do this conversation all day. It would be fantastic. We are all out of time. The book is quit the power of knowing when to walk away, which we have to do right now. Annie Duke, thank you so much for joining us on Beyond Politics.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.